Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Philippians 2. And the last time we looked at Christ's humility model, what did Jesus do? What did he, what sacrifice did he make? What, what did he have to give up to come to take the form of a man as, you know, God leaving heaven, coming to take the form of a man and dying for our sins? Well, there was a lot involved. Uh, and every so often we cover a portion of scripture where there's like a doctrinal element to it. So we covered heavily some theology. You know, we looked at kenosis, we looked at hypostatic union, we looked at the peccability versus the impeccability of Christ, and it's good to know this stuff. You know, if, you're, if God uses you and you're not, you're not even expecting it, maybe you're out in public, it's just so great to be able to be able to have that information, 1 Peter 3.15, you know, to have an, an answer for people ask you, why are you a Christian? Now, it doesn't mean you have to be a theologian, but it does mean that there are some times where you'll be challenged. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, how did that work out? Well, what's the particulars to that? So if you didn't get it last Sunday, um, you can get it for free off the website. And today we're going to look at really what our response is to Christ's humility, right? What do we, what do, we do now? How do we live out this Christian life? And I can throw a whole bunch of stuff and stats at you, but everybody really wants to know, how do I do this daily? How is this a day-by-day thing? And humility is a funny thing, to be humble. Uh, and I think that's one of the most misunderstood characteristics. You know, as the saying goes, once you think you've grasped it, I'm humble, you've actually lost it. You know what I'm saying? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but just thinking of yourself less. Now, kind of reminds me of the pastors who were preparing for a humility sermon, you know, this series that they were doing. And They were kind of really wanted to make the point and really wanted to be dramatic. So the two pastors are in the sanctuary and they're preparing. So the one pastor, he has this idea, well, I'm going to really make my point and wow the congregation. So he practices and he gets down on one knee and with his best English accent, he beats his chest, looks up and says, Lord, I am nothing. So the other pastor looks at him and goes, wow, that was really good. You know, maybe I can try that. So he kind of emulates the first pastor and he gets down on his knee and, you know, in in a feigning humility, he beats his chest and says, Lord, I am nothing. Well, the janitor walks in. He doesn't know the context. He just sees these guys, what he thinks is real humility. So the janitor is moved with a, a true dose of humility. And the janitor just stands there and he bows his head and he says, Lord, I'm nothing. Well, the first pastor, janitor walked in on their shtick, on their spiel. So the first pastor gets indignant, and he looks at the one pastor, pointing to the janitor, and goes, look at this guy coming over here thinking he's nothing. You know what I'm saying? So kind of missed the point. And when you understand humility, it's that enigma of, you know, well, I have it, I've attained it, I've worked for it. Yeah, but you're not being humble. So it's one of the more challenging things that we face as Christians, I believe. So let's jump in, and I'm actually going to cover 
a little bit of last Sunday, just a few verses to give you some filler and context. Paul says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Okay, jump into where we are this morning. Verse 12, he, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So the first out of four, we're going to take this in four parts, is humility played out in everyday life. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, again, in context, he's connecting those verses of Christ's humility to what, where we should be, in, in a sense. Verse 12 and 13 is fascinating because I've heard it misquoted a lot, misunderstood. Work out your own salvation. Now, some think, well, that means, see, I work my way to heaven. I do enough good works and God accepts me. That's not what that means. When you go back into the original Greek, what it means is, and this term was used to work out, it meant to, for miners, when they were in a mine, they would try to get as much of the elements out of that mine as possible to try to maximize the potential of that mine. Uh, it was also used for farmers when they had a produce. You know, they would work out that field to get the maximum amount of that harvest. And it really means to work to completion. And as Christians, you know, we're saved. But that's not the end of the story. You know, some think that's the finish line, and it's not. It means to, to now start to bear fruit as a Christian, to work with God in this awesome relationship, right? You know, today some think that the starting line is actually the finish line. You know, sinners coming up at the end of service, coming to get saved. I've crossed the finish line. No, 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 that's just the starting line. You now are a different person. You are a born-again believer. You have the Spirit of God in you. You're different. You're a different animal, so to speak. And I've, I've told the story many years. I've lived as an unbeliever, as a religious heathen for 24, 25 years of my life, and then I, I got saved. And sometimes I look back at my old life, and I remember, and I'm almost like, who is that person? You know what I'm saying? It's just, my life is just so different now. It's amazing. So the starting line was coming up to get saved. And then we work out our salvation. We don't sit back, you know, jump in. The water's nice. Jump in with both feet. Okay? Uh, and it also says work out your own salvation. That doesn't mean that we work out somebody else's salvation. It's obvious. I'll give you a great example. My son, you know, be great if he was a pastor. <laughs> but that's not my business. <laughs> I just, just so you know, so you can remind me later on, um, I think he has the head and he has the heart for it. Uh, but he may, God may choose him to be something else. He might be a missionary somewhere. I don't know. He might be a, a servant, an Epaphroditus. We'll get to that in the church. And that's, what does God have for him? What does God have for you as an individual? Now, it's great to counsel with those that you trust who have gone through that road and say, what do you think my gifts are? What do you think, what do you think God can plug me in somewhere? That's great. But in the end, it's between you and the Lord to work that out and then to work out that salvation to its fullest. And he says, with fear and trembling, or do it respectfully and with humility. As Christians, we're not called to be arrogant or pharisaical. And i got to tell you that 
The biggest test of that is when somebody gets under your skin, when they irritate you. You know, how do we respond, right? But this is to be um, endemic. Um, it's, it's to be through the Christian walk without, you know, with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean we don't have our moments. It doesn't mean I don't have my moments. I'm just as much of a sinner as everybody here. Verse 13. This is amazing because this has been debated between Calvinists and Arminianists. And this verse, I think, is wonderful because it says that there's both. God has a sovereign will and man has free choice. So, Christians, you do this. Work this out. It's your, it's your free choice. However, God works in us and through us. He works upon us. He works alongside of us. The Holy Spirit is there. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does it say? That He gives us both divine desire and enablement. So we really can't take credit at the end of the day. So in other words, God empowers us. We, we obediently obey and God is glorified. And this is a, a great relationship. So when I'm asked, well, so what, what does Christianity look like every day? Pray. Read the Word. You know, um, maybe, some, maybe trade some of your friends that are always trying to drag you down and bring you back to your past. Trade, trade them for some friends who really care about you genuinely, who want to lift you up and edify you. And you go through this life and the Lord reveals things. Sometimes He reveals it through a devotion in the morning. can't tell you how many times my wife and I, um, and, and I switch devotions. I don't even do it for the day it says, you know. I could be reading it tomorrow and I'm reading it for August. So what? It's still a devotion. I haven't read that one yet. And something pops out and we're like, wow, we were just praying about this or talking about this. And it reveals something. So this is what the Christian life is about. You know, it isn't joining a religion. It's not joining a church. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's having a relationship with the living God. That's what he wants. We don't want to be ripped off by having a cheap relationship. And he doesn't want to be ripped off. You know, it's a, it's just, it's a daily walk. That's why it's called a walk. A lot of really great emblems in the scripture. Verse 14, he says, Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. What I love about Paul is he's personal. He's a personal, he's a personable type of person. He he writes these letters, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and his feelings come out. You know, when he had to be stern with a, a church that was wayward, he was, but he was still loving at the same time. Just a very balanced individual. But it says to do things without murmuring or disputing, or complaining, or grudgingly, or arguing, or contrary. I like to throw a lot of synonyms out there so we get the full picture. Right? These things are acts of the flesh. And as Christians, we don't wear these characteristics well in ministry. I remember many years ago, he wasn't on our ministry team, but he was a, kind of like a traveling ministry person, and he was part of our church, and he just would come in a lot and just be always grumpy, always miserable. And people started complaining to me. And I had to take him aside and say, brother, if you're going to act like that, you should just stay home. He was shocked because nobody had called him on the carpet and we had a discussion about that. I mean, for heaven's sake, you're scaring the kids, dude. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if you're going to come into church, try a little bit, you know. But, uh, but it, things did change, and that was a good thing. But it's, it's obvious. You know, it's an obvious thing. When you look to your leaders, and they're miserable, and they're just 
fleshy, then you, 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 know, you can take on those characteristics or say, maybe this church isn't for me. So we can look at that. Now, these are important that I go into the synonyms. You know, what does it also mean? Because it doesn't mean to be sinless. So if I read this to you and you said, oh, I can't, I can't do this, it's sinless. No, that's not what it's saying. So we look at blameless, to be above reproach, right? To be harmless or to be innocent, to have an innocence about us spiritually. Listen, I, I was in the world, I told you that, for over two decades. But when I approach situations and when I you know, go out there, you know, to be gentle, to be somebody who doesn't think I'm out there to swindle them or, you know, to do something to them. Just a, a spiritual innocence. To be without fault, it means not to be discredited, right? Without fault. You know, this is in the new life of the Spirit. To not be corrupt and perverse in a corrupt and perverse society. And we see what our society looks like. To not be stained, to not be blemished, you know? It's like that it, hopefully it doesn't stick to us. Right? Verse 15 also says that we're supposed to shine as lights in a spiritually dark world. Our lives should be noticeably different. I want to read something from actually Warren Wiersbe in his book, Be Distinct. Actually, is a commentary, not on Philippians, but it's on 2 Kings. And he quotes a, a Barna research poll where they did some interesting surveying. And he says this, after studying 131 different indicators, that's a lot, of who we are as people, we concluded that it is difficult for non-Christians to understand Christianity since few, not none, since few born-again individuals model a biblical faith. While there are instances in which believers are different from non-believers, when we compare the two groups, the statistical differences are minimal. To the naked eye, the thoughts and deeds of Christians are virtually indistinguishable from those of non-believers. Now again, you may go to a church and maybe a packed church, and the pastor's pumping you up every Sunday, telling you how great you are. That doesn't happen here. Um, we can do a better job as the church. Listen, you, you open up the news, whether it's the paper news, the print news, or the, the, you know, the web news, it's like... We're descending into a dystopia in our society. You know, this is where our, our society is going. It's devolving. There's plenty of opportunities for us to be a light. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect, because I'm not perfect. And I enjoy going out and telling people about the Lord, and I'm glad I don't have to be sinless to get there. It's very important that I say that. But there should be some distinguishing characteristics. Why would an unbeliever want to be a Christian? You know, people are complaining. Christians are complaining. We're becoming a post-Christian nation. And I've read articles that said, well, the church needs to do a better job. Okay, so now it doesn't mean being phony. And I've seen, you know, we've all seen that in the Christian culture, a phoniness, putting on a show, putting on a facade. I'd rather somebody was just real. Uh, but it does mean that as we immerse ourselves into this, into this, we might not even see the differences, but people around us will see those subtle differences and changes and distinguishing characteristics. So... You know, this is what we're talking about. And, and I, I, you know, again, it's, I'm, I'm reading about the, the, the pipe bombs in um, Point, was it Point, Seaside Park, Point Pleasant area. I'm, I'm not familiar with the shore, I apologize. Uh, the one in New York City. Um, I mean, every day you read the paper. We live in a sick society. People are hateful, they're angry, they're fearful. We have so many opportunities to, to affect others. And I'm really, I'm going to beat that drum for a long time. 
So are the pastors and elders here. You know, some Christians retreat to a utopia on earth. I consider that retired Christianity. Some Christians get to the point where it's just all about them. They're just retired Christians. I mean, how does that happen? If, <laughs> if I know the uh, truth of the gospel and I know somebody is going plunging, how do I not say something to them? How do I not throw them a lifeline? See somebody sinking in quicksand, how do you not throw them a rope or a branch or something? You know, what has God called us to do? Jesus said that our light is not to be hidden under the basket. It's supposed to be put out for all to see. Okay, and again, you can't force these things. I used to try to do that as an immature believer. It has to come naturally. God will slowly get us to that point where we start to have that effect and can be those lights that are um, emanating Christ's light, right? Verse 16, he says, holding fast the word of life, or another translation is holding out to them, meaning the unbelievers, the word of light. We have treasure, we have hope. True treasure and true hope. Not a political slogan, not an idea, not a concept. This is something that is supernatural. That's why it's so amazing. Because it transcends not only this life, but eternity, but the next life. So we have this treasure in earthen vessels, the Bible tells us. Amazing. That God puts such precious things into a, into a body that eventually is going to end up in the ground one day. But God loves us so much that he wants us to be a part of what he's doing. And Paul's basically saying, almost if I could paraphrase him, make me a proud papa. You know, make me proud spiritually. When the day of Christ comes, I just want to know that you guys had run that race well, that you guys were affecting people in that Philippi region. And it, this is important. If you're in ministry, you understand this. You can put so much time, love, effort, wisdom into a person, and they can turn around and throw away the things of God. Uh, and again, it's, it's an experience that if you're in ministry, you see that. If you're actively bearing fruit as a Christian, you see that. And it's heartbreaking. And there will be an accounting one day for all of us. And there will be an accounting for shepherds. Paul was a shepherd. He was a, he was a good under-shepherd. He really had a heart for the people. 800 miles away, he was concerned about their well-being, their spiritual well-being. You know, he wants to rejoice. He has this shepherd's heart. Verse 17. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So this is two out of four. This is Paul's example of humility. Now, this isn't saying that Paul's saying, hey, look at me, I'm humble. Going back to that original illustration that I did in the opening. But what he's saying is, I'm not just telling you how to live, I'm trying to live this way as well. And there are times that if you're discipling somebody, you give them that example. Uh, you, you point out that example. Maybe if it's, you're discipling somebody who has an anger problem and you had an anger problem and they saw you handle a situation where somebody was pushing your buttons and you say, listen, that's the way you handle it. You don't punch them in the nose. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not out of bounds to say that. So he's giving this example. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament, this illustration, in Numbers 15. They had the grain offering and they, you know, they had the wave offering, the burnt sacrifice, and they also had a drink offering that they would take wine, which was precious, took a lot to make it in those days in that area, and they would pour it out before God. They would offer it to the Lord. Now to the untrained eye, 
or the unspiritual eye, they would say, what a waste of good wine to the untrained eye or the unspiritual eye. And, and I can tell you, I've, I've read commentaries from Roman historians about Paul and said to him, they said, but this is an amazing thing. Here's a guy who is highly educated, who is going places, who um, rubbed elbows with the most important people. He becomes a Christian and loses everything. Like, what's his problem? They don't get it. Well, we get into uh, Philippians 3, and he talks about what I gave up in life and what I gained in Christ and how there's no comparison. Amen. You know, we have to get out of the mindset in Western Christianity that God loves us and we're good Christians if we're always healthy and we're always wealthy. That's not scriptural. It's nowhere in there. So Paul's saying, I don't, you know, I'm offering myself as a drink offering. I'm giving myself to God. And what was he doing? He was evangelizing unbelievers. He was planting churches. He was helping them, them to mature. And this was becoming illegal. So Paul finds himself in prison now. I read an article, and, and I think I referenced it once, about these teenagers. I don't know if they were Syrian or Iraqi. Christian teenagers got caught by ISIS, and they said, convert or die. What would you do if you were in that situation? You got your whole life ahead of you. You have decades. You could get married. You could raise a family. They could say, they could just placate them and then run away and say, okay, I'm really a Christian. They actually all said, we can't deny Jesus Christ. He's our Lord and Savior. And they were killed. Right? Not everybody in, in America, we don't face those choices often. Although there was, I, oh, I read something recently. Oh, I can't remember which one of these chief of police uh, was saying that the one guy with the, with the knife attacks was saying, this is in America. It was a mall attack. Are you Muslim? And if they said yes, he would leave them alone. Allahu Akbar. And he would go, if they weren't, he would slash them. What would you do? Are you a Christian? Deny your faith. Boko Haram in Nigeria, in Africa. Deny your faith. We'll kidnap your girls. Some hard decisions, isn't it? But Paul said, if they execute me, remember, he's in prison. They execute me, they execute me. This is what I have to do. I can't deny my Lord and Savior. And he said, basically, rejoice. Rejoice. Now you see, what you see too is this reciprocity between Paul and the Philippians. 800 miles apart, Paul's in prison. And he, they have a relationship. They sent him a gift while he was in prison. They sent Epaphroditus. He's, he's looking to send young men back there to, to minister to them, to report. Um, send so-and-so so to carry the letter. They come back and how, you know, this back and forth. Reciprocity is important. Somewhere in 2,000 years of Christianity, some of this has gotten lost. And I, I tell you, it's not a good thing. And there's this idea, if you can look it up, it's called consumerism in the church, where it's now a one-sided relationship. Now, this is where it starts. Churchgoers, some churchgoers, it's a one-sided relationship with the Lord, and a lot of it has to do with bad doctrine. You go to pray, every time you go to pray, it's an I want list. Lord, I, I need this, I want that, I need this. It's a one-sided thing. It's not necessarily to receive wisdom. It's not necessarily to ask the Lord what you, you could do or how you could you know, bear some fruit. It's one-sided. They go to the church, they look at the church, and their attitude is, what can I get out of this church? So it's, it's one-sided with God. It's one-sided with the church. It's one-sided with the pastor. And I can tell you something, it's very detrimental to the church. So when we talk about and have an honest discussion about where America is moving, possibly post-Christianity, we have to look at some of the aberrations in the church. 
because it wasn't like this in the beginning. Verse 19, he continues, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, meaning Timothy's, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Paul didn't know the future. He had expectations. He had high hopes. But he, you know, this is, he, had, he had plans. This is what he wanted to do. He didn't say, you know what? I got stung, man. I mean, I got arrested. The conditions weren't good. I think this Christianity thing is not for me. He's saying while in prison, when I get out of here, I want to come to the church. I want to write to this church. I want to... You couldn't stop this guy. But remember, he was an average person. He wasn't a superman. He wasn't a super saint. And he also has his moments of, of, I don't know, maybe sadness or things like that. And you could read it in his letters. Just a very well-rounded person. So the third out of three, the third point is Timothy's now example of humility. And Paul now shifts as we end. We're going to close with Timothy and also Epaphroditus. These were two servants. They were useful people that, that the Apostle Paul used. Uh, verse 19, basically, he says, I, w- I want to send Timothy to you, and when he comes back to report to me, I just expect great things. High expectations. We talked about this also last Sunday. If we have a bunch of relationships in our lives where there's low expectations, then what happens is we have very, sometimes very shallow relationships especially in a marriage. You know, we should, we should expect more, especially in the term of fidelity in, in certain areas, okay? Um, and maybe you've heard the expression before, I expect more from you. I expect better than you. I mean, I expect better than that from you. That's an example of having a high expectation. Paul said to the Philippians, I expect that this, I'm going to get such a great report. You know, you're in Philippi, you're in the middle of the... Pay, uh, pagan Roman area. I know that you guys are doing a great work over there. But again, have we experienced those high expectations in our lives? Um, I know I've heard that before. Sometimes I hear it from my wife. And if she says, Joseph R. De Prosimo, I expect better from you. I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> so, but what do, what do I want to do? Well, when she uses my full name, then I know I have to really take what she's saying to heart. But I, I want her, she looks up to me, you know, she has that, so you know what I want to do? I want to I please her. I want to do the right thing. And sometimes we need that little coaxing from each other to say, you know, I expect better from you. I know you can do better than that. I know it's in you, right? So we can take a lot of these things and bring them down to our personal lives. Verse 20 and 21, Paul says, for I have no one like-minded. Now remember, he's in Rome. So there are some Roman Christians Uh, who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Now, if I could take Rome and and bring it up to 2016, Rome was like the L.A., or it was like the New York City. It was the happening place back in those days. It boasted uh, well over a million inhabitants. For a city of that day, that was pretty impressive. It does seem that maybe some of the Roman Christians were busy with worldly pursuits, because, because this is what he says. So I talked about retired Christians. And even today, you have your jet-set Christians. 
that they're out there to make their mark on the world, and that's all they see. Again, they crossed the finish line, they got saved, but now I'm going to make my mark in the world, and they don't bear fruit, and many will have regrets later on. You ever look at a hospital wing and a street sign and somebody's name is on it, you hear a person's name, and you say, gee, I wonder what they did to get that wing on the hospital. What did they do? What was their legacy? You know, I, I want my legacy to be somebody that pleased God, that did the best I could. Through good times and through bad, I still did it. You know? I often um, make an analogy with marriage. When you say, when you go up to the altar, you say, you have these vows. I promise. What do you promise to do? Well, I promise to love you. Well, only when it's good? No. Sickness, health, right? Poverty, riches, whatever it may be. It's always great to, to have a relationship in the good times, but what happens when the bad times come? That really determines what type of people we are, right? little caveat here, if I can just throw this in here, is that serving is a joy and a blessing. I can tell you that right now. I can speak for the other pastors and elders. We don't go up to, you know, to put on a suit and go to do a wedding, and we don't stomp our feet going, I've got to do a wedding today, you know what I'm saying? Grumpy. You know, it's, it's something that's joyful to bring two people together that are making a commitment. To actually be at a, a funeral of a saint and to give the gospel and to speak about why we know that person is in heaven. Funerals aren't fun, but that part is really enjoyable. To have somebody in your office and counsel them, and then they leave your office and they do better. And they just needed that little push, you know, that little spiritual influence. Serving is a joy. Or some that I know that uh, serve and do, you know, uh, mechanical things. And this is their contribution, right? There's air conditioning in here because somebody did something on the lines, or there's heat, or there's whatever. So serving, you know, I'll just give you another example too. When we had VBS for a week, which wasn't that long ago, and you saw the video that was put together, um, you had middle-aged people, for the most part, working a full day of work. They would leave their jobs. At the end of the day, they would go home, eat something real quick. Then they'd come to the church. And then they'd run around with the kids all over the place. And you saw those videos. I remember pulling up on VBS and just seeing some of the people in the, in the children's ministry running around on the grass, laughing, kids chasing them, squirting them with water, um, just doing all kinds of neat stuff. It's, it's joy. You know what I'm saying? And again, before I was a Christian, I had this idea that serving God was gonna, God was gonna make me miserable. Like, you know what I'm saying? You, you know, you gotta be somber, you can't laugh, you can't smile, get it all out of your system before you come to the church. And that's not true. That's not true. You know, Christianity is, is a lifestyle. It's not a meme, it's not a Facebook post, it's not a bumper sticker. Christianity is a lifestyle. And I think some straddle the world and, and Christ maybe because of fear, the fear of the unknown. But I've got to tell you something. Once you get into it, it's just an awesome thing. It's just really a blessing. So um, I have a, a young couple here that I married some time ago, and they came back from down south and made their route back to New Jersey. It's just great to see them, and, and I can't wait to see the little boy, Dominic, and how he's grown up. It's just a, it's just a great thing. You invest in people, right? And, and that... It's just nice. It really is. Verse 22. He speaks about Timothy's proven character. So what he says is that Timothy has been tested. He's been tried. And here's, here's an interesting thing in ministry where you can make a mistake as a leader. 
is to br bring somebody up too soon. And we all make mistakes, right? And, and as the expression goes, that if a person's branches go out a lot further than their roots, when the storms come, that top heaviness will knock the tree over. And this applies to ministry as well. They need to be established, and Timothy was established. He was discipled by Paul. What type of Christian was Timothy? Well, he was young, the Bible tells us. He was tested, he was discipled, he was mature, and he was used to teach, to preach, and to help. Timothy was not a rising star. He wasn't the next celebrity. He was useful, and he was faithful in ministry. On to four out of four. Verse 25 he says, yes, yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So God uh, healed Epaphroditus. He got deathly sick. We don't know how. And uh, Paul was saying, boy, if I lost Epaphroditus, I'd really be, remember, he was human. My heart would really be broken. I'm so glad that the Lord healed him. I really, I needed this guy. I needed this kid. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. There's a word that we keep finding throughout this letter is joy and rejoice constantly. Uh, I think before the end, I'm going to count how many times it's used. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So four out of four, Epaphras, Epaphroditus' example of humility. Okay, uh, Basically, he initially comes to Paul with a, a love offering, of probably a financial gift, maybe some, I don't know, oils or w whatever they, the church sent to Paul, and they give it to him, and that's a long trip. You know, when you did ministry back in the day, I mean, you really, you really put your life into it because you could be doing some ministry task that could take you a whole few months to complete. So Epaphroditus goes to see Paul. Um, he gets sick. He gets healed. And he wants to send them back. Who was Epaphroditus? Well, we know. Some people say, well, I never even heard that name. Because he's one of those un unsung heroes. Valuable nonetheless. Oh, I've heard of Timothy. Epaphroditus? Hmm. I don't know if I remember that name. But he was service-oriented. Some today would consider these tasks menial and unimportant, but they were vital. He wasn't a great theologian that we know of, but he did get the job done, whether big or small. Here, here's a guy who his own health he was probably somewhat concerned about, but that didn't stop him from serving. He, he had the heart of Paul. He learned from his discipler. You know what I'm saying? Uh, to me, a church can't run without several Epaphroditus's or whatever, Epaphroditus I, whatever the plural for Epaphroditus is. Uh, so I appreciate all those that are Epaphroditus's, and every pastor does, hopefully in every church. I mean, I look at my life, I was an Epaphroditus, I was a Timothy, and here I am today. But why does Paul, as we, as we close, why does Paul use them as an example? And I really believe it's because many Christians today, but many Christians back then, heard of Paul. And some might have thought of him, like you do today, like some do today, that he was this super saint. And Paul's saying, here, let me tell you about these two guys. Right? Two guys. And, and the cool thing is that, again, for those that, that struggle with, well, I don't know what I can do. I don't know how to serve. I don't 
and, and you get down on yourself. I don't really think I have. I look in the mirror. I don't have these great gifts. I don't have, I don't have, I don't have. So you have two people here. One, he's a young guy, Timothy. He's maybe cerebral. He's, he has a grasp of the word. Um, he can teach. He can pastor. He can fill in. And he also does tasks. Okay? Then you have another guy, Epaphroditus, who we don't really hear of him pastoring a church or anything like that, but the guy's service-oriented. Maybe he's um, strong physically, uh, he can get the job done, and maybe if he looked in the mirror, he would say, you know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but you know what, I could, I could do something for the Lord. And I think the blessing when you look at these two people is, so you put Paul aside, that God can use all of us. I remember when it was time for me to get into teaching and ministry, and, and I had all the excuses. Some of them were valid, some of them were not. And uh, I remember somebody saying to me, teach above your level. I never forgot that. That's many years ago. You know, just go and take a step in faith and God will bring you up to where he needs to bring you. He'll let him do the work. And again, sometimes we try to force it. We try to, we struggle, we question, we, we look around. You know, remember when my wife and I first started coming to a Calvary, it was a big Calvary and everybody was standing and singing and their hands were raised and we looked at each other and said, we don't belong here. You know what I'm saying? I'm not kidding. We thought every person in this room is holy and perfect and we're going we're gonna to stain the place. You know what I'm saying? But, but you get these crazy ideas. Satan doesn't want you in the church. He doesn't want you to grow. He doesn't want you to mature. And he'll tell you anything. He'll whisper in your ear he's a bully. That's what he does. But I'm here to tell you that when you look at this example, Paul is saying, these two guys are invaluable to me. And one guy just carried the letter. And one guy did tasks for me. But I've got to tell you, I would be lost without these guys. So just keep that in mind. So as we close, the first 11 verses really establish Christ's humility model. And here, well, the Philippians are called to respond to that in humility. But you know what? So are we. That's why this is called the living word. This word could be, this could have been written yesterday. Maybe the Apostle Paul thought, and he had an inkling from the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be around forever. You're, you're going to be martyred. Maybe not through this bout, but through the next imprisonment. And he thought, so, so what do I do? Think about this. If you know you're going to pass through whatever means, what do you say to your loved ones? What do you say if you're, um, in, in, if you're a disciple or if you're a mentor? What do you tell those that you've mentored? What parting information do you give them? It can't be fluff. It has to be something that's going to build them up and strengthen them through the good and the bad times. So what does he do? He teaches them about love, about humility, about sacrifice, about service, and about being good examples. And i got to tell you the truth. This isn't just for the Philippians. We make a huge mistake when we almost have like a preterist interpretation of the Scripture. It's just for that time. No, it's not. Then why do we bother getting together and reading it? There are timeless uh, instructions and qualities and things that we can learn if God tarries another thousand or two thousand years. It'll still be relevant. So as the title says, our response to his humility model, that we would go home and that when we're alone that we would pray to God and we would ask him, Lord, what is it? What do you tell me through that message? You got my attention. What is it you want me to do? What are my talents? Where do you want me? Where can I fit in? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation 
from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.